0: Hello and welcome to 4Questions. Today we're discussing how we can improve working conditions and environmental practices in global supply chains. Until now, the widely accepted solution has been private regulation, that companies have their own corporate codes of conduct and these are audited to check that they're complying. But Professor Tim Bartley, who is Professor of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, is a little bit critical. He's got a new book out called Rules Without Rights, and I wanted to learn about this. So, Tim, tell me, why is private regulation widely accepted as the solution to labor and environmental abuses in global supply chains?
1: Yeah, I think it's become uh, a standard solution for uh, a a few interrelated reasons. So one, starting in the 1990s, uh, environmental and labor and human rights NGOs increasingly started targeting big companies and putting pressure on them to improve conditions in their global supply chains. And so one of the things that's come out of that is the companies then have codes or subscribe to codes that are developed by other initiatives and point to that as evidence that they're uh, improving conditions rather than relying on exploitation and degradation.
0: It was the NGOs naming and shaming companies, exactly. saying, Gap, you're awful, led Gap to make incremental improvements, and then use these third party auditors to say, look, we, we've got better. So it's partly because the NGOs targeted companies rather than the state that led the companies to make some adjustments.
1: I think that's right, or at least led the companies to be hungry for Mm. indicators of of progress that they're making.
0: In order to safeguard their reputations and protect market share.
1: Exactly, and to build their reputations and be known as sort of sustainable and rights-respecting corporations, um, which is a second piece of the puzzle. I think one of the factors that's kind of made this especially big and led to this just vast world of standards is that uh, socially responsible investment funds and even mainstream investment uh, groups that are looking for indicators of environmental, uh, social, and governance practices look to these kinds of private regulatory systems, look for certifications, look for glossy sustainability reports, uh, and indicators of, of continuous improvement and so on to list uh, companies in their in their funds or to score them on these indicators. So there's a so, there's a sort of NGO uh, part, there's a investor part. And then I think a third piece is that in the 1990s, when all this was uh, occurring, there was this belief that may or may not have been true that uh, governments weren't willing to act and that intergovernmental arenas weren't very uh, responsive to these initiatives. So the WTO had basically refused to uh, do anything about uh, labor standards, the uh, attempt to get a kind of social clause. Uh, to be part of the WTO had essentially failed. Similar things had happened around environmental and, and forestry issues. And so NGOs, I think, thought that maybe the private sector was a more promising promising solution. And by some account, actually, in some ways, governments had uh, signed on to the WTO in ways that did limit their ability to regulate. Uh, so the WTO has uh, some restrictions on what governments can do to regulate across, uh, both mm. inside and Uh, and and outside their borders, or Mm. to regulate uh, relative to trade. And that, at least rhetorically, and I think also practically limited what governments were willing and and maybe able to do at this time. And so there was all this energy of Mm. NGOs, of governments, of companies, of uh, philanthropic foundations, uh, to kind of build the private sector, make the private sector uh, 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 capable of enforcing some set of standards globally.
0: So I guess it's sort of part about... A set of people wanting to show that there have been improvements, whether that's companies, Mm -hmm. investment funds, consumers, and private regulation being seen as the way to show that there have been improvements. And I think in the book you also mention another actor, and that is the audit industry, and how they wanted to improve their industry share. So they would say, yes, we can do it. We can fulfill this function. We can show you that everything's fine.
1: Of course, the people that are making money off of this are the the big auditing firms Mm -hmm. in particular that shifted from... Just auditing, sort of quality and safety and financial kinds of uh, issues, to auditing social and environmental issues as well. And some of these firms have grown dramatically during. Um, but but yeah, it's I, I don't think they were exactly responsible for creating the whole thing, but they mm. certainly were in a position mm. to capitalize. Mm.
0: So I guess as supports for private regulation increased, then that audit industry expanded. And then it sought to, sought to protect it. And so it, it sold itself, right? It's yeah. fun. Salesmanship. Like, we can do this, we're, we're here, we'll be your heroes.
1: And they had, uh, the big ones in particular, already <laughs> had offices all around the world. I mm. think this was maybe their big advantage is, is that they could say, well, we, we have people in uh, Vietnam, and China and in China, in Indonesia, in uh, Honduras already on the ground. And so companies that needed auditors to come into factories there could simply turn to. Uh, to those companies.
0: Mm, Okay. So that's the political economy behind why private regulation became the only game in town. Partly about our expectations of what we think will work uh, and various interests. So here's the next empirical question. Does it work? Does having a corporate code of conduct, a rigorous corporate code of conduct, actually improve things?
1: Not not to a great extent. Certainly the companies that have invested the most in having leading CSR programs have uh, rigorous codes of conduct and have developed real procedures for assessing their compliance. They've, they've changed certain things. So in the book I talk about uh, some ways in which um, health and safety systems have improved, not everywhere, but some places, in spite of uh, events like the collapse of the Rana Plaza, uh, uh, set of factories in Bangladesh that remind us that basic safety is still not guaranteed in spite of the rise of, of codes of conduct and corporate social responsibility. But health and safety management has improved. The, the conditions, the physical conditions of factories have often improved. And management has, in some cases at least, become a little bit softer, a little bit uh, less likely to, to manage through just shouting and yelling and, mm. uh, and, and calling people names. On the other hand, Uh, So, the title of the book is Rules Without Rights, and uh, when we look at the rights of workers, especially the rights, uh, the collective rights of workers to to unionize, uh, we see much less progress. And even when we look at other kinds of rights, when we look at respect for human rights, we look at um, environmental programs that try to deal with things like land rights, uh, we see much, much less progress. So, uh, does it work or not work? Well, it works for certain kinds of issues and promotes certain kinds of solutions. But that's a far cry, I think, from the kinds of uh, real change in global industries that many of us think should should be happening.
0: And I want to really big up how you do this methodologically because you look at... I think a lot of work in this field will only look at one particular industry, like I'm sort of in the garment industry sphere, and most of those studies just look at garments. What's really nice about your book is you look at garments and logging, and I think that shows more systematically about global supply chains as a whole. And then you don't just look at one country, you look at two, China and Indonesia. So Tim, and you can explain more, you compare both certified and uncertified factories and see if there's a difference, see if certification improves things. And rather than just look at any type of certification, you look at sort of the gold standard of certification. Can you tell us a bit more about that comparison? I I was able to
1: do this in China, so I Mm -hmm. I didn't have the data to do this everywhere. It would have been great. Um, But that data is, of course, hard to come by. But I sort of got lucky in China and some other researchers had done this survey of workers in factories in South China, the the area that is the factory to the world, um, and some of those uh, factories were certified to arguably the strongest multi stakeholder standard mm-hmm. for factory certification, which is the SA 8000 standard uh, developed by a nonprofit group called Social Accountability International. Um, and to the extent possible, what I wanted to do was figure out whether. Uh, controlling for other factors, other differences across those factories, whether we saw sort of big discernible differences between certified and uncertified factories Mm. on things like wages, treatment of workers, um, uh, management practices. And for the most part, the answer is no. So uh, despite the fact that uh, SA8000 calls for factories to pay a living wage, you don't actually see in South China at this point in time at least, uh, premium uh, workers uh, getting a wage premium for working in certified factories. You don't even see uh, systematic differences in uh, things like the extent to which workers report seeing verbal abuse or being subject to verbal abuse. Um, You do start to see some differences when you look at management systems that companies might put into place. So I think one of the big messages of the book, which maybe speaks to whether it works or not, Mm. uh, is that what factories uh, are doing around the world to try to comply with these standards is kind of beefing up their management structures, creating human resource management offices and I, I find evidence that uh, factories that are certified are more likely to have bigger, more active human resource management uh, Yeah, you talk about
0: these processes, the processes. It's,
1: it's, uh, there's a lot of improvement in process mm. and not a whole lot of improvement in performance. Mm. You know, it's, there, it's a real question about going forward, does the rise of human resource management in a place like China lead to a fairer, more equitable kind of uh, workplaces? Or... On the other hand, does it diffuse and take away from the force that has actually led to improvements in wages, uh, if, if not other things, uh, in China, which is uh, collective action and yep. strikes by workers? Mm. And I don't know the answer to that question. I kind of posed that at the, mm. at the end of the chapter on China uh, as a real question for us to, to consider.
0: So-, so Tim, you take a comparative approach in the book, looking at both forestry and also labour. What do you learn from that comparison?
1: So, on one hand, they're they're very similar. In both cases, you've seen private forms of regulation uh, based, in some cases, on certification and often on auditing of compliance with these global standards that are set by brands and retailers as well as multi-stakeholder initiatives, like, in the case of forestry, the Forest Stewardship Council. Um, So there's a basic kind of structural similarity between the two cases, and there's a lot of similarity in the way that these play out in the field. Uh, I find that as as much as the Forestry Ship Council standards are strong and uh, not quite as uh, compromised on the ground as, as many labor standards initiatives mm-hmm. are, um, they haven't very very well very uh, they haven't done very well at dealing with the rights of forest dwelling people, uh, especially in a place like Indonesia, but also in a place like China. Uh, in Indonesia, this is very open and contentious. In China, the contention over land is often very fragmented and, and sort of pushed underground. Um, so one of the things I do toward the end of the book is sort of try to think about why is it that uh, sustainable forestry standards seem to have a bit more integrity than uh, these, these private labor standards do. Uh, and there are a variety of differences in the standards themselves and in the mm-hmm. organizations that were responsible for creating these standards. Mm-hmm. Um, environmental NGOs, I think, had more power mm-hmm. over a multi-stakeholder initiative like the Forest Church Council than they have in labor standards. Uh, but there are also, I think, these big picture differences in how we conceptualize labor and environmental problems on a global scale. So when it comes to environmental issues, I think the the idea that environmental problems affect us all and that the environment is a collective good is very strongly supported not only by environmental NGOs and uh, green parties, but by the World Bank and the WTO uh, and sort of elite uh, commentators uh, who are quite uh, uh, hostile to the idea that global labor standards might be a public good. That is that uh, uh, deterioration of conditions in, uh, of labor conditions in one part of the world might ultimately uh, undermine the conditions for decent work everywhere.
0: Even though there uh, is some research suggesting that.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we should take seriously mm. that, uh, that labor standards and labor conditions are a global public good. Mm. Not, not purely one, uh, but in part uh, a global public good as are uh, environmental issues. Um, so, because
0: so, of that difference in conception of how people see the environment, do we see better enforcement on environmental issues?
1: I think we do. I think so. When you look at uh, what the Forest Church Council does, uh, from what I what I found in Indonesia, Indonesia and China at least, mm. um, their standards are quite strong on paper and fairly well enforced when it comes to uh, issues of environmental management. Um, and to a somewhat lesser degree issues of community rights Mm -hmm. uh, to forest land. And they're very poorly enforced when it comes to labor issues and uh, at least labor rights of forest workers. Um, So the difference has to do not just with the Forest Stewardship Council compared to these other initiatives, but there's something about labor rights that just hasn't been taken as seriously in this uh, field of transnational governance and, and corporate sustainability. Uh, as have other kinds of issues.
0: So maybe one implication of that would be that you were, for any advocacy coalition trying to improve labor standards, work closely for pushing for a broad sense of liability with environmental issues. You know, I'm thinking of the French duty of vigilance law. That's not just about labor, it's about the environment too. And through that you draw in all the environmental advocates and maybe that strengthens the coalition.
1: I think that's right. As long as you have strong Partners in that coalition mm. uh, that are at the table, um, then I think that that would be a, a you know a wonderful idea. Mm. I think what matters over time is how close uh, how closely these initiatives are being watched. Yes, I think for both public and private mm. initiatives, mm. watchdogs really matter. Yeah, and if you have watchdogs that are focused on labor issues and and other watchdogs focused on environment and other watchdogs focused on community, then I think you could have. Uh, uh, you know, a set of standards that could could truly be upheld across these issues. If you have standards on paper that speak to everything, but the watchdogs are all focused on one issue or another, then I think in practice the other issues will sort of fall off off the agenda.
0: Okay, but here's a political economy mm-hmm. question: Why is it that certification doesn't make a difference?
1: So, in part because it's not very well uh, uh, monitored and audited, uh, and in part because factories have incentives to do everything. Uh, contrary to what the standards uh, for certification suggest. So in China, for instance, in many places, but I think China is the most extreme, um, auditing became uh, uh, factories uh, be- became a terrain of lots of fraud and laxity and uh, corruption, mm-hmm. uh, where auditors who are often not very well paid, mm-hmm. they travel a lot, they don't have a lot of job security, um, it became common for them to be offered and sometimes maybe take or at least negotiate over... Uh, bribes uh, in order to give factory a passing score Mm. Um, and there simply wasn't enough oversight and hasn't been enough oversight of that auditing process to make sure that the auditors are really uh, being stringent in their interpretations okay so
0: maybe the answer is just to improve auditing
1: well so let me say i mean i think improving auditing would help and uh there are some conscientious careful experienced auditors that i that i talked to Mm. and, and and watched and it is possible for auditing to be much better than than the standard than the typical uh, uh, and But there are some serious problems that auditors will face no matter ho- how good they are. It's simply hard to figure out what's going on when managers uh, are uh, in- intending to mislead you as an auditor, and when they're coaching workers to tell you that everything's okay. And you might as an auditor get sort of little tidbits and fragments of information to suggest that something's not quite right, but if you can't prove it, often the brand uh, that you're working for uh, won't, will we'll sort of discount that information. Um, so auditing could be better, it's hard to make it perfect, but it, it could certainly be better. But the second piece of the, of the, of the problem is that uh, when factories, especially in uh, industries like apparel mm-hmm. and uh, to a somewhat lesser extent footwear, when factories are facing pressure for low prices, very quick deliveries, uh, that gives them incentives to, uh, to really squeeze workers, to sweat their workforce. And even with the rise of CSR and private regulation, and this whole world of standards Mm. and certification and auditing that we're talking about, um, there's been much less change in the prices that uh, retailers and brands are willing to pay to their suppliers and in the way that they uh, that they place their orders. And I think this is a real contradiction. Mm. It's hard to imagine that changing, it's hard to imagine conditions changing just by improving auditing if you don't also go after. If it's it.
0: separated from procurement practices. And one thing you, you, you document in the book is this charting. So for example, uh, company a manufacturing company may get an order at the beginning of the year but then six months later the buyers will say right here's another order and it's up for grabs for everyone so again there's that constant scramble for everyone wanting to have the lowest possible prices so there's no and the focus is on the prices rather than anything else
1: this is right this is this and I'd love to see uh, evidence that this is changing everyone Mm -hmm. hopes that brands are, are changing their practices in this way. Mm. Um, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that yet, but but maybe it's still to come. Mm. You know, the other thing that's worth saying is that the other reason that the the private regulation is is so difficult mm. is that companies have chosen to to source from countries that are uh, are quite repressive mm. in in the way that they treat workers. So. Um, Factories in China can improve to some degree and and some of them have improved Mm -hmm. under the layer of private regulation Mm -hmm. and uh, due to other factors strikes and changing labor markets and so on. But the migrant workers who staff these factories in China are by definition second-class citizens who don't have rights in the cities where they work because they they retain their rural residency. There are big divides sort of symbolically in Chinese society. They're heavily dependent on on their employers for the right to even be Mm -hmm. in the city. Um, and of course their capacity to act collectively either through uh, informal means or in, in unions is severely restricted in a place like China so the other message of the book is that the problem of private regulation can't be divorced from the domestic context in which production is uh, is located. China is probably the clearest case where those, the domestic context, the national context, imposes real limits on what can be improved but Uh, Even in in quite different settings like Indonesia, where there was and is a Mm. vibrant, independent trade union movement, um, its characteristics and its weaknesses are very hard for private regulation to really uh, get past.
0: So I guess the idea of audits is predicated upon the idea that through audits you can enable Improvements in a factory, irrespective of what's going on in the wider political economy. But if you have sustain, if you the procurement practices are pushing for low prices, and that in turn can encourage governments to repress labour, so they don't mobilise, so they don't protest, etc. Because I guess the domestic political economy is partly a response to that, to how they think they can position their country uh, economically. Then we, we have to deal with this. So. Going forwards, I guess you're suggesting the government source from low- and middle-income countries that respect labour rights and enable autonomous watchdogs.
1: I think that if, if companies want want to be serious about sustainability, fairness and corporate social responsibility, they should think not just about how they push standards to their suppliers, wherever those suppliers happen to be located, but think about prioritising countries where it's possible to improve and to have decent conditions. And as your question uh, makes clear, that doesn't mean that you have to bring uh, factories to, uh, to, to Europe or the UK or to mm. the US. Um, there are poor and middle-income countries that are more open to reform and to respect for rights than others. They've just so often lost out in this global pol- political economy. Uh, especially in industries like apparel that move move really rapidly yeah
0: and and that's what happened in indonesia after collective action enabled some wage w- uh, wage rises in the 1990s late 1990s then afterwards we saw manufacturing shift to other parts of southeast asia where wages that's
1: were That's right i mean indonesia has continued to have a pretty big apparel industry but it's been precarious for And quite as you some
0: say in the book movement. moving to rural areas like moving out to the cities where wages are lower So
1: indonesia you know once when so general suharto fell from power in 1998 and very quickly Indonesia changed its laws under international pressure to allow independent unions and there were there and there had been a history of actually labor NGOs and even some underground organizing during the authoritarian years and so there was this explosion of of unions of independent Mm. unions in Indonesia and I think a hope among many uh, advocates of global labor rights that Indonesia could become a place where certainly you weren't going to have perfect conditions right away, but there was respect for labor rights on the books. Mm. There was some kind of a democratic setting that allowed for collective action. There was civil society. Mm. And then maybe Indonesia could be a place that proved that you could have wages that were certainly not high by, by Western standards, but decent and respect for rights. But what happened is, as the tr- trade union gains, uh, as the union movement gains some power, increasing minimum wages actually uh, engaging in collective bargaining in some factories. Those factories and those regions increasingly lost out as the, as orders moved to other parts of mm. Indonesia and uh, to other countries. And some of that has since come back as China as wages went up in China, mm. uh, companies started coming back to Indonesia mm. and then people went to Bangladesh and then there was concern about uh, safety in Bangladesh. And so they're, they're, Indonesia mm. hasn't lost its industry, mm. but it's always been, uh, operating in this place, where seemingly overnight, uh, all the orders could could go elsewhere. And, and
0: your I point in the book matters. is that Indonesia is not being rewarded economically for respecting trade unions. That's right. And this, if, uh, sorry,
1: this is no sorry. This is something that one of the uh, people I interviewed in Indonesia, mm. uh, factory owner mm. and um, uh, trade association uh, leader, actually made this made this argument that uh, you know everyone says that we want to respect human rights in our supply chains, and yet. Uh, they keep going to countries where respect mm. for those rights is is really problematic mm. or impossible, essentially.
0: But here's the problem: Why on earth would a country, why on earth would a business, a company choose to go to low and middle income countries that respect rights when it can get things a little bit cheaper in Myanmar, etc.? How could we incentivize that shift in procurement practices?
1: Yeah, I think. Um there's a, there's a private sector answer to that question, and there's a sort of public, uh, more state-centered answer to that question. So the private sector answer is I think that in fact investment funds and the rise of ESG, environmental, social, and governance indicators, um, is potentially important if they ask the right questions and they push for the right things. And so um, it doesn't seem impossible to me for uh, sort of the arbiters of corporate social responsibility in the investment world to say, you should prioritize places. If you want to be on this index of socially responsible uh, companies, you should prioritize places. That um, have the capacity for real improvement. So, yeah, uh, so the
0: investment companies wouldn't be looking at the audits of individual factories, but rather country-level conditions. Can you mobilize? Can you organize? Is there labor repression? I think okay. that's right.
1: I think that's right. I think that would be a step. It certainly doesn't solve solve things overnight, mm. but that would be a step in the right direction for these uh, for the kind of field of, of corporate social responsibility.
0: Okay, so that's uh, the private sector answer.
1: Yeah. Well, clearly, I think it's becoming increasingly. Um, increasingly clear that, that uh, governments have to play a role. Governments in uh, certainly in producing countries like uh, Bangladesh and Indonesia mm-hmm. and China uh, have to be able to build their capacities to enforce their own yeah. laws on the books and they often have uh, quite strong labor laws on the books that are not well enforced. But also governments in uh, countries with big consumer markets like the UK and the US mm-hmm. and uh, other parts of, of Europe um, should think about creating laws or extending laws uh, in ways that incentivize real compliance in global supply chains. There are obviously some limits on, on what they can do, mm. but there are some surprising things that are possible even in a world of sort of uh, free trade, uh, norms about free trade and not interfering with uh, the rights of, of other uh, of other countries to, to uh, become competitive in the global economy. So, for instance, um, the law in the books is often quite progressive, not the same everywhere, but um, essentially all countries that are part of global supply chains have laws about minimum wages, maximum working hours, some health and safety regulations. And if we uh, ask companies to simply uh, comply with those laws, um, I think that would be a, a real step in, 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 in the right direction. And it seems like you could even have governments demand that uh, companies comply with the domestic labor laws in the countries that they're um, that they're producing in order to sell products in the UK, the US, in uh, other parts of Europe.
0: Could that really happen?
1: I don't know. But the, you talk uh, about
0: the tra- transnational timber regulation, it's, it's right? It's
1: happened. So this is this is what uh, makes me think that it's it's not crazy to, mm. to 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 think about is that it has happened around the question of illegal logging in the timber industry. Um, so. At the same time that the timber industry and uh, has seen the rise of all these kinds of voluntary sustainability standards, which I, is a big part of mm. basically half of, of the book is about uh, voluntary sustainable forestry policies, there is also this recognition that a lot of the worst deforestation and even violation of human rights of forest dwelling people was about illegal logging, mm. logging that hadn't been authorized in the first place. And so there was this tremendous international mobilization. Uh, to combat illegal logging. And what that led to were these remarkable laws in the US uh, and in the EU that uh, penalized the sellers of products if those products had been made in violation of the law on the books in in the country of production. So in the US, for instance, uh, an old law called the Lacey Act, 200-year-old law, uh, 150-year-old law, maybe, was revised to include forest and, and timber products and it led to a company called Lumber Liquidators, a big seller of wood flooring and so on, uh, being uh, prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice for selling products in the U.S. that were uh, manufactured in China from a supplier in Russia who had logged the uh, illegally. And, and an environmental NGO had actually tracked this, uh, this, this chain and had evidence of it Department of Justice went and did their own investigation, and found the same thing, and they uh, pursued this case against Lumber Liquidators. This is remarkable, right? And the Lumber Liquidators doesn't own the factory or the forestry operation, um, and uh, and yet it faced penalties uh, for for the violation. So if we could do this, uh, this should give a company like Lumber Liquidators an incentive to really uh, be um, be vigilant in its uh, in its supply chain tracing, uh, and to really promote. Uh, a culture of compliance uh, through its supply chain or face the consequences. Maybe something like that could happen for labor as well, right? Maybe oh, a, a mm-hmm. company could uh, have face, face a lawsuit or have its products seized uh, because of violations of labor law in China or Bangladesh or Indonesia, even if it doesn't own those, uh, those factories.
0: One really nice point about the, this particular legislative regime is it's Upholding the country's own laws. So it's not imposing our neo colonial ideas. And it overcomes some of the information difficulties. You know, often we don't know exactly what's happening in supply chains, but workers and communities in that country of origin do know when their laws are being violated. So they're most likely to mobilize and enforce and protect their laws. So it's merely just upholding and strengthening and recognizing. Their activism.
1: That's a great point and I think you know so often this uh, this fear of imposing so-called Western yeah. standards on yeah. other countries mm. has been used to discredit calls for more binding stringent mm. forms of global regulation mm. but the fact is uh, countries have developed uh, bodies of labor law and they've expanded over mm. the past two decades. Uh, maybe it was true in the in the early 1990s that uh, most countries around the world didn't have very developed labor law or the capacities to really uh, enforce them, uh, but that's changed. Often the capacities are still lacking, although that's, that varies a lot mm, itself. Mm. Uh, but labor laws in many places have, have become more stringent, and so one could actually build, I think, a more effective form of global regulation by simply using global supply chains to ensure better enforcement of domestic labor law. Now, just, just to say, that wouldn't solve everything. So some things are not in the labor law, and sometimes labor law, of course, is sort of repressive, as we talked about in the case of China. Mm-hmm. Um, but the difference is there are social movements, there are activist groups uh, and, and unions and uh, more or less organized in various uh, settings uh, that take labor law really seriously uh, and have, I think, much more, are much more attuned to labor law than they are to sort of global codes of conduct. And I think have greater capacities to actually shape the debate about the meaning of labor law uh, in, in their particular country. And so it moves the... There's still a struggle about what it means to be compliant, but it shifts that from being a, a debate between NGOs and brands in, uh, in the UK or in the US to being a debate between reformers and governments in countries of production. Uh, supported, hopefully, by these kinds of transnational production systems. I think that would be a step in the right but direction. But wait.
0: <coughs> Hold your horses, Tim. Because I think there's a possible catch. Is it possible that in sensei, say, uh, these governments would weaken their own laws?
1: It's certainly possible, yeah. A, so that, mm. that could happen. But I think that what gives me uh, hope that that wouldn't be the, the primary trajectory is that reformers have managed to push up uh, and improve and expand labor law, in spite of a fiercely competitive uh, global economy Mm, mm. Um, and and there's simply dynamics within many of these countries as workers are increasingly uh, mobilized and sometimes organized uh, to to keep labor law being at least relatively strong and, and keep Countries from simply watering it down completely.
0: Mm. And it's also. Uh,
1: It's easy to not enforce a law on the books, which is what's happening now. Yes. It's harder to get rid of a law on the books when you have citizens Mm. that are bought into that law.
0: Now let's reflect on the broader message of the book for people interested in global supply chains and transnational governance. For me, my reading of the book, and I'd be interested to hear what other listeners think and you think is that for so long, people have tried to make incremental improvements to private regulation. People go get excited about the Bangladesh Accord, they get excited about all these multi-stakeholder initiatives. But I think reading your book, people should just recognise that they're only making very small incremental improvements, and actually they need to take a step back and realise that the system is just not working, and they need to think more creatively. About public
1: regulation. I, I agree. I think uh, you know. There's certainly it's it's a time where we ought to be thinking creatively about alternatives and also about uh, public forms of regulation that might use supply chain pressure more effectively. I think I'm not a proponent for you know what 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 private regulation and the rise of CSR and sustainability mm-hmm. has done is turn retailers and brands into sort of regulators of their global supply mm-hmm. chains or given them that position. Um, I don't think they fulfilled that role very effectively, but I do think they could fulfill it better if sort of pushed a bit uh, some more stringent form of public regulation. I think the message of the book would be that in spite of the fact that private regulation has accomplished some marginal changes, has pushed certain kinds of managerial structures uh, to new locations, and maybe sometimes uh, the label that's on a product really does mean that the product is made in uh, quite different conditions than the norm in the rest mm. of the industry, um, I think the 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 frequency with, with with which those things happen is pretty rare, and we need some alternative approaches that, uh, in my terms, recenter the state uh, in both producer countries and uh, consumer countries. At least uh, rethinking of the uh, of the basic paradigm, mm, yeah, and, and uh, not assuming that this is the only game in town. Yeah, absolutely, uh, as you put it at the beginning. Mm.
0: Thank you very much, Tim. That's been thanks nice for time.
1: having me. It's uh, it's wonderful to talk to you.